Hello. There's a slight audio issue with this episode where in some places the dialogue gets a little bit echoey. Um, I've done my best to edit most of it out, but there are still moments where it does occur. uh, But we hope it's not going to spoil your enjoyment too much. Hello and welcome. This time, as my co-host John Deere and Dave Thomas, that's me, close out what we arbitrarily refer to as our second season, we examine one of the jalloiest films that we've ever talked about. Made not in Italy by an Italian filmmaker, but made in the US by Brian De Palma, a man who insists that he's only ever seen one jallo. Do we buy it? Listen and find out. It's Dress to Kill from 1980. Please join us. of the macabre, who shocked audiences everywhere with Sisters, Carrie, Obsession, and The Fury, now invites you to a showing of the latest fashion in murder. (coughs) Dressed to Kill, Michael Caine, Angie Dickinson, Nancy Allen, Dressed to Kill, Murder, Made to Order. Spoiler warning, as we will be delving into the key twists at the end of the movie, and content warning for sexualized and gendered violence, victimization of sex workers, and very egregious, problematic, outmoded, and invalid depictions of the transgender community. So one of the um, things I've learned from doing this um, journey with you, Dave, is uh, that a lot of my assumptions as to you know as to what is a giallo and the the the, the tropes thereof um, uh, have been challenged, which is you know part of the experience. And you know we've we've seen before, and I've gone, this isn't like a giallo, and you've gone, yeah, this is because we're in a sort of formative stage, or it's it, mm. yeah, it predates a, a key work that's become sort of a default, like like uh, you know. Burn with the crystal plumage, etc. So, mm. so I've, I've garnered a, um, a deeper understanding of other tropes, but that that can be contained within within Jello. Mm. Although I hope we totally agree that Suspiria is not a Jello. F- fully endorsed, yes, yes, yeah. And anyone who's listening to this and says it is, you're wrong. <laughs> That's get, get out. <laughs> Go away, turn, turn, turn the podcast off. It's not. Mm. Um, so I was interested to, to look at Dress to Kill and say, that's the perfect example of what I always thought a shallow was. Right? Yeah. I mean, there may be, like, you could probably say, you know, there could be a few more to, to, to misquote, you know, legal gentlemen, uh, how many killings. Um, you know, the body count isn't high, but apart mm. from that, it ticks pretty much every box. Mm. Uh, you've got the 
highly convoluted, slightly point and meandering plot that often is full of is full of filler because it just looks good. Mm. You've got extra dialogue. That's what it is. <laughs> you've got um, ridiculous motivations uh, from characters. You've got useless police. You've got deeply problematic sexual violence. Mm-hmm. You've got pointless erotic. Well, pointless. You've got erotica because clearly that's, that's <laughs> there's only one one point to that. And you've got a twist um, at, at the end about about who who the who the, ki- who the killer was. Um, so mm. this is the most typical Jalo I've seen in ages, which makes it all the more surprising that it's uh, an American film from 1980 directed by Brian De Palma. Absolutely, and 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 this is where my fascination lies because and we've touched on this as we particularly as we've gone through this kind of second go around. Is you know what constitutes a jello? Is it is it a set of influences, yeah. kind of dovetailing into a particular form, irrespective of whether you know the people who've who are making the film have actually been part of that sort of journey? Yeah, and I've said to you before, and, I'm surprised there's quite a lot of gothic in there. Hmm. But, you know, the, the, so you know you can you can see where it's been drawn out. There's a lot of there's a lot of noir, which hmm. I was quite well, I was genuinely surprised. I, explored, I think I expected more of the gothic, but there's more of the noir um, influence and uh, yep. legacy into that as well. Sorry, Karen. Yeah, yeah, and well, but but the thing that fascinates me about De Palma, and and this is probably going to sound throughout the the conversation that I'm bagging on De Palma because of the things that I think he kind of lifts from unintentionally or otherwise, um, which is not true at all because I love Brian De Palma. He's one of my favourite directors because he is so <laughs> ludicrously over the top mm. in such a uh, glorified, gloriously stylish way like Argento, like, you know, the the, the yellow, great yellow directors. Um, but what fascinates me about him is he's, to my mind, he's the most jello-y American director. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something that he he said in an interview in, I think, around 2012 when Passion came out. I think it was Passion, the thing with um, Numi Rapace and Rachel McAdams. Um, and so it, essentially uh, the, the interviewer put to him, oh, you know, you're, you're obviously you know, acknowledged that you're influenced by Hitchcock and you've spoken about, you know, Antonioni and, and the conversation and all that kind of thing. But you're obviously also influenced by Argento. This is what he says. The only Argento movie that I really know is The Bird with Crystal Plumage. That's the only one I remember seeing. I'm not a big follower of Dario Argento. I know I get compared to him, but the Jallo cinema I'm not a student of at all. I know that they think I look at these films and take ideas from them, but believe me, the only one that sticks in my mind is Bird with Crystal Plumage. And this, this is my favourite bit. And Mario Bava, I remember Marty, which he means Martin Scorsese, showed me some of the movies in the 70s and I couldn't even tell you what the titles are. And as a director who kind of wears his influence on his sleeve because he, you know, has, has spoken at, you know, length about how his, you know, love of Hitchcock and how he literally is kind of copying Hitchcock. I mean, because this is, this is psycho, right? I mean, this yeah, is... Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I said to you when I was watching it, it forms the, the complete... The, what, one of the things Psycho is most famous in terms of a trope rather than mm. an individual team. Uh, mm. He nicks entirely, as in you have the entire focus of the, of the, of the first period of the film uh, on one character and then they're killed. Mm. Yeah. And you also, you know, are led to believe that the, the, uh, the gender of a particular character who is the killer is yeah, yeah, one true. thing and it's not. So, you know, he's, he's copying a ton of, of Hitchcockian stuff and he does that, you know, throughout his career, acknowledged, you know, and widely acknowledges it. So it's interesting that through either subconsciously or furtively or 
just something in the ether in their sensibilities he's so, like this is pure argento stuff in here like the gal- the art gallery yeah and the thing in the lift with the mirror in it, it, it's like it's picking the glove up picking the glove up right it's it's shot yeah <laughs> i mean picking it's the glove like up so argento <laughs> I mean, it reminds me of, you know, like um, the first thing it brought to mind was just like something weird, something in the background looks okay as well, something in the foreground. It's like the start of Deep Red where the shoes mm. go into the, the shoes go into the, 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 the foreground. The black gloves, uh, mm-hmm. I'd be mild, I would be surprised if you, if you didn't tell me that wasn't Brian De Palma's hand. <laughs> I'm not sure whose hand that was. No, no, actually, that's right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we have, I think I said to you at the time, the, you know, there's like a 10 minute sequence mm. of just wandering around the art gallery. As um, Angie Dickinson, um, I mm. don't know who the plays the plays, plays the bloke, um, mm. who's who's full frame, who isn't a major character at all. No, yeah, that's his only real that's his only real function for it as well. Uh, but any of us, you know, they sort of flirt over a very long period before having unlikely sex in the back of a cab again, mm. um, <laughs> not in time with with the cab driver just angling his mirror to have a really really good look. You know, mm. with, um, they're all things that I t- that I assume and. When you watch it from a point of view as, uh, if not British, then as a, as, a, as a Western Anglophonic viewer, then it's easier in some ways to, to look at the otherness of Italian cinema and go, this is a bit different. In a like PG Woodhouse way, well, they're foreign, therefore excitable. Um, because the rules and touchstones of, of this particular cinema and, you know, European cinema generally and, you know, Jallo in, 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 in particular are different and they're, they're serving us a different culture and a slightly different audience to, to that which you expect. But this is an 80s Hollywood film. Well, to, to all intents and purposes, it's a mainstream American film hmm. uh, with a mainstream American cut. It stars Michael Caine. Well, you know, stars. Um, and it's something that seems even more alien by virtue of the fact it's wrapped in very familiar rapping. Mm. Um, so I'm genuinely surprised by the the sequence in the in in in, in the art gallery uh, than I would be if I was watching if I was watching an Italian giallo. Mm. Um, and the slightly stilted weird dialogue. And normally you take it, you know, you, you have no reason to disbelieve people in a certain high profile sense when they talk about influences. Like I'll talk a bit about my other work. Here, when I'm talk, I talked to Lawrence Gordon Clark, the Ghost Stories for Christmas uh, director, about you know the the you know the document. He was a documentary maker, and he made the first two Ghosts of Christmas, Stories of Archer, of the Curious, as as part of a documentary team. Mm. Uh, not 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 by BBC, not by the BBC Drama Department. Uh, particularly, in particular, War of the Curious has a lot in common with Jonathan Miller's Whistle and I'll, Whistle and I'll Come to You. Made as an omnibus, the art strand from Omnibus. So again, with a small documentary unit, they're both made on Norfolk beaches with documentary units and have a similar aesthetic. Now, a very different tone, but a very similar aesthetic in terms of it. And I said to Lawrence Clark, you, you must have seen it and thought about it. He was like, I, I hadn't seen it when I made it. <laughs> uh, which is, I have no reason to disbelieve him. Mm. Um, but <laughs> I find it very, very, very difficult to believe Brian De Palma's never watched a Jalo apart from Burn with the Crystal Plumage, and yet has saturated mm. this film with every trope going almost yep. of of Jalo cinema. Yeah, someone pointed out um, even that because uh, if you actually kind of look at the the 
the things that he did that are in that kind of thriller giallo vein um, starting with um well not starting so i think well his his actual first film which is is kind of a murder mystery is called murder on a mod which is a very student film it's it's actually quite insufferable um he's been around since the early 60s isn't he or sorry, the late 60s, uh, sorry. 68 was his 68. first feature and he'd done shorts and things before that right. um he did a movie called sisters in 72 which is sort of a, th- a thriller type thing uh, which is which is quite fun um, but seventy six, he made a film called Obsession, which is is kind of his first riff on Vertigo, um, which is kind of amazing because it, it part way in it kind of cuts from this sort of period setting that sort of sets up the plot to you know many years later, and it literally takes place in a church in Italy. Oh, is, <laughs> so, that, is that the Paul Schrader? Uh, one. I think I've seen that. Uh, yeah, with Cliff Robertson and yes, Genevieve Bajol. Yes, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So, so, so it literally kind of starts off in this very, you know, Hitchcockian, obviously, kind of milieu in the in the sort of I think it's meant to be in the nineteen fifties, and then it literally cuts to like, don't look now. <laughs> yes. So, so again, it's like, mate, come on. It, it <laughs> Um, but yeah, so someone pointed out. So uh, one of his later films uh, in the nineties, Raising Cain, uh, with um, John Lithgow, one of his his kind of regular go to actors. Yeah, he, was he, obs- he was an obsession as well, wasn't he? He, he was, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, and and he's been in a bunch of of departments. I mean, he's famously in uh, in Blowout. Yes. Um, as, as the killer in Blur, um, but yeah. So there's a shot in Raising Cain, which is, is which again is is another riff on Psycho and a sort of gender reversed killer uh, or, or gender fluid killer that's literally like nicked from Argento's Tenebrae of like someone coming up behind yeah. someone else, which is also pretty much a riff on Psycho because it's about a gender fluid killer who's so yeah. It's 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 really. It, it's fascinating. I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't want to be like Brian. Come on, you know, be honest. But because I feel like he would be, but I know it's, it's, it's strange, like, right? It is, and it would be if he if he isn't. Then it's such a such a remarkable coincidence because it isn't just the visual; it's the dialogue, mm. it's it's the pacing. Um, it isn't like you've seen something and mm. just gone. I can, I can, I, I can, I can mainstream that. Yeah. He's taken often deliberately non-mainstream acts from from Jallo, mm. and you know, and 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 put them in and put them into a mainstream film, which in itself is brave. But um, to then say I've never seen them, like you know, I can't, I can't accuse him of lying. I simply, I simply don't know. But the coincidence mm. is huge. Yeah. And, you know, this is a guy who's had huge success, or at least I suppose before um, uh, what before Casualties of War. Um, was it Casualties of War the one he? No, is it Redacted? Sorry, I'm thinking of Redacted, aren't I? Was mm. the one the one he sort of blo- he sort of um, gets into trouble with? Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, he, he again, and it's sort of slightly funny that he he almost follows the Argento pattern in some ways because he because um, his first kind of really huge hit was Carrie, which is seventy six. Um, which kind of preceded this by a little bit, and then you know he has he has a pretty successful run through kind of Dress to Kill, Blowout, Scarface, obviously uh, Body Double, The Untouchables. Um, but then when he kind of when something goes awry, he tends to go back to the thriller, the Jallo, the way that Argento does. So like you know yeah. nineteen nineteen eighty nine and nineteen, so he has Casualties of War and Bonfire of the Vanities back to back, and of course 
an inf- you know bomb of the vanity's infamous bomb yeah. so then he does raising cane which he Again, he's very much the Jello thing. Then he has, you know, he has like sort of Mission Impossible, Snake Eyes. Then he does Mission to Mars, which is again an absolute catastrophe. Oh God, that was bad. Um, And then he follows that with like Femme Fatale and the Black Dahlia. So it's kind of like it's a sort of safe space um, in the way it is for Argento. I'm not sure I realised he directed the Black Dahlia. Yeah, yeah, he did. Okay, right. I saw that. I saw that in in Tennessee. Did you? (laughs) Yes, I did. I saw that in somewhere in Tennessee. I can't remember now. Well, uh, pr- probably near Nashville, but it wasn't directly in the center of in the center of Nashville. Yes, it was. Yeah, I didn't know that. But um, okay, so he's uh, maybe he's just very similar in his in, in, in his sensibilities. It, I I feel like they're they're almost like sharing a brain without really kind of acknowledging it. Much like the plot of Sisters, which is yeah. right. <laughs> anyway, okay, I've not seen any, that one, that's any, anyway. <laughs> Starring, starring our um, f- former Christmas episode, most valuable player, uh, Margot Kidder. Um, yeah, it's good fun. It's, it's worth catching, actually. Okay, seventy two. So anything from seventy, I do like anything from seventy two. Uh, shall we do a, shall we do a, a plot run through and, and pick out some interesting things? Yes. Okay. Um, actually, before we do that, let me just let me just throw in, um, and, and I will have, uh, although I haven't done it yet, I will have done by the time I'm editing this together. Uh, have done the various content warnings and things but i do want to reiterate um so so this is a uh a film with a number of problematic elements one of which the key one of which and the one which probably sort of remains the most controversial about it is the sort of transphobic tone of the of the the ultimate reveal of the killer let's say um now uh, obviously, you know, you could say, well, you know, it was, it was made a long time ago, etc. Don't, not too fussed about getting to that, but I certainly am not here to perpetuate any transphobic myths and that this could be kind of a, a manifesto movie for the gender critical movement. No, we're, we're not having that. Um, fuck those people. Uh, trans rights are human rights. And that is, that is, I feel like the position of the podcast uh, yeah, the um, uh, the worst turf argument that um, trans women are just are just murderous blokes in dresses um, will as be directly relevant to the to the um, the climax of the plot. So yes, mm. I re- re- reiterate that in no way do do we condone or endorse that message. We're simply describing what happens in this in this film. Mm. Uh, we open. Uh, with um, uh, a woman called uh, Kate, mm-hmm. who's played by Angie Dickinson, very popular in the sixties. Angie Dickinson in the uh, Carol Baker role. Yes, yes, good point. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, Im- and immediately in the shower. Yes, she's having a shower uh, while her husband shaves, and I initially thought, "Well, this is quite cheap because it's, it's sort of like a mid shot. Mm. Hey, he's shaving with with a with a cutthroat razor, you notice. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of foreshadowing uh, out there. But then we spend the next probably five minutes um, really examining why she she must have some very dirty breasts because <laughs> she spends a lot of time soaping and cleaning her breasts. And fairly shockingly, you get um, you get clo- you get a relatively close to her groin. Oh, now mm. you know it's obviously it's not a porn film, despite. <laughs> Or evidence to the contrary, so it's only ever just bush. 
mm. uh, that's that's seen. But nevertheless, you know, you'd see a few shots, and it's just like this is a strong start. Mm. To which I remember texting you and saying, "Why are you making me watch porn?" <laughs> anyway, uh, that but that scene goes absolutely nowhere other than to illustrate her state of mind because she appears to be attacked by a man in the shower, but she's sort of. What you think is initially distress may not be quite such distress noises she's making. Um, mm. uh, we then cut to her, which we assume was a dream or, or something as well, um, when she's having um, disappointing sex with her husband. Yep. Uh, and then he goes to work and she then goes to see her son, who, um, this will be very relevant, is a, is a computer genius. Bear in mind, this is 1980. Yep. Um, he's, a, he's a dab hand with his with his science uh he's very very intelligent mm. which is handy um played by keith gordon from uh, christine oh yes yes i knew i recognized him from somewhere yeah mm. that's actually that's one of my least favorite uh john carpenter films it's it's not up there yeah it's i don't find, i just there's a lot like a lot of stephen king's i just don't find the premise scary right there's some good ideas in it, and I like the way it plays. You know, old, it plenty plays old music, but it's just and like there's one good death bit where it sort of conceals itself in. Mm. Um, but if you want that shit, then you know the car is infinitely more fun. <laughs> Satan's car. Oh yes, that's, that's so good. Anyway, let's talk about the car. I'll, I will wax lyrical about the car. I love that and, and James Brolin. Uh, for it. Anyway, um, uh, she goes to see her. Th- she goes to see um, her therapist, hmm. play uh, called Doctor Robert Elliot, played by Michael Caine, mm-hmm. uh, and tells him that she's that she's unhappy. Um, some 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 impressively bad phone acting there from Michael Caine, who's not who's not very good in this. But then no one's actually very good in this. But you know, Michael Caine isn't often is often not very good. Yeah, uh, it, it's just when he's he does a certain type of role very 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 well. Um, hmm. And obviously here he's, he's breaking out into, into Hollywood and taking taking. Audio. I understand this part was offered to Sean Connery. It was, yeah, and apparently it was sort of scheduling issues that meant he couldn't do it. But um, I think he probably got the better end of the deal by doing by doing the Untouchables. Well, the, the, the my favourite Kane anecdote is apparently so he'd just come off of. Uh, I think like a run of action films or like adventure films. So he'd done like Beyond the Poseidon Adventure and the Island and stuff. And he just kind of liked it because he could sit down. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't have a vast amount to do until no. the very end. To the extent that I was going, I'm not sure that he really counts as a main character. He's certainly only credited first because he's by far the most famous person in this. But anyway, mm. Mm. Um, he, she uh, has a, a chat with her, with her therapist. Uh, uh, and quite candid, and she basically says, "You know, like, you know, do you find me attractive?" And he says, "Yes." And I'm, I'm not really sure a psychiatrist should should do that, but it's a shallow <laughs> film. Of course, yep. he does. Uh, and basically says, "Do you want to? Yeah, do you want to fuck me?" And he's like, "No, no, because I love my wife, and that would be unprofessional." And I'm thinking, it would also be unprofessional to be unprofessional to say we're not talking about that sort of thing. You know, don't <laughs> don't, don't, don't project onto me. Yeah. Um, but she doesn't. And uh, they have the session. He books her in later and she says she needs to go off. Uh, she's going to look at some art, um, presumably just to, just you know, to pass, pass pass the time. And she goes to, it's meant to be the, the Metropolitan. It, it is, yeah. The exterior is the Met and it's meant to be the Met, but as, as uh, it's the interior is, is Philadelphia. Anyway, she's she looks at some, looks at some art, particularly one bit, and then someone sits next to her. And then she starts having a bit of a flirt. Uh, but he just seems a bit brush off, and, he's, and um, he he walks off. But she follows him. 
dropping a glove, as she does. And then she follows him uh, and then loses him and he's giving her the slip. Uh, and then he appears behind her and they start playing a sort of fun, fun game, uh, which involves them wandering around quite a lot, <laughs> quite slowly for a long time in, in, in the art gallery. And, you know, I keep thinking this scene's going to end, this scene's going to end. And then I'm just going, this is so fucking Italian. <laughs> and he picks up a glove and he puts a glove on and he puts mm. for a game, he puts his hand on her and she doesn't read it. And she's like, oh, she runs off and, and they'll, and then she runs outside and then realises what it was. And then she drops her other glove and then she sees the bloke in the cab and then she goes up to, to introduce herself and say, sorry, I didn't understand. And he just grabs her, grabs her in the cab and basically starts having sex with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they drive off. It's been 10 minutes, so she gets her tits out again mm-hmm. and he gets her pants off. Uh, we, we get a quite short to, to add to, you know, to identify that her pants are off. Um, uh, and then they go to his, they go to his apartment and, um, and then you see them after. Surprisingly, after that, you don't actually see them having sex. Mm. Um, but she sort of, it's sort of a bit later, and she sort of gets up, feels a bit, goes around looking for her pants several times before realizing they're, they're still in the cab. And then, impossibly, what was up to them when I was still at this point going, I have no idea what this film is trying to say, produces one of the funniest sequences so far that she gets dressed, phones her husband to check he's in, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm not sure why. I hope they don't have recall on the phone because that's going to be opens a drawer, finds a letter, sorry, letter paper, uh, and then gives her a you know note paper and does leaves leaves him a presumably a, a flirtatious note uh, mm. of um, of what might be in the future. <laughs> but then in the drawer, Marty says that he's missed. There's a there's a doctor hospital point. He's missed detailing that he's got loads of that he's got gonorrhea mm-hmm. and several other venereal diseases, and she's like, "For fuck's sake!" And I'm like, "Practice safe sex, kids." And I'm laughing because it also, uh, given that what I now know, this has no bearing on the plot <laughs> whatsoever. It's right. just, to, it's just to fuck with her. And then I'm, like, and then she leaves, and then in a bit of a, and then she sees uh, a kid. Uh, in the in the lift, yeah, so there's like good tension scenes in the lift. Hmm. Um, as she, um, the kid gets out of the lift, and it's like you know what's going on. There's quite close up shots, and there's pressing, and there's tension. She wants to get home. She wants to get hmm. home. She wants to get home. And then someone, someone gets in the lift with her, a quite tall woman with a blonde hair, who then turns around and cuts her up with a cutthroat razor. That, I think that was the moment you texted me and said, oh, it just got good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it comes out of nowhere. Yep. Um, and then we cut to, is it Liz, played by Brian De Palma's then wife, Nancy Allen. Yep. Uh, probably best known now for uh, Robocop. Indeed. Um, and who turns out to be, I think it's her trick. Uh, yes, then, yeah. So she's, the, she's a sort of high class. I think... I think what the one of the cops describes as like a Park Avenue call girl or something. So yes. she's a, a high class uh, sex worker. Yeah, we will say so. No one ever uses the term sex worker in this. In the, in, 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 in the... It wasn't invented yet. No, uh, all the terms <laughs> they used for her job, sex worker, is not is, is not one of them. <laughs> she's standing outside the lift, and her trick sees before she does what's in the lift. I. Um, Kate's dying body uh, mm. and just does one. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then she looks 
and Kate's not quite dead and reaching out to, to, to her. And so she sort of reaches, she's pointing, reaching, uh, which is again a really shallow thing. Mm. And um, brilliant, brilliant camera work. The killer is still in the lift. Mm. And as she goes to move her hand in, you see the 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 uh, cutthroat razor start to come down and the killer's there. But as she goes in, then there's, there's a convex mirror and there's, you know, there's reflective surfaces and she um, she sees the killer. Um, that's so deep red that's so the end of deep red <laughs> um, and the killer sees her so she's now the target of the killer now I'm not sure if the next bit because uh, she retrieves that it's, it's either it's dropped mm. um, but she picks up as the lift closes she picks up the um, the razor and is now like a suspect and she like runs and like people run away from her mm. back with Dr. Elliot um, he now gets a message from Bobby uh, who is a patient who it becomes clear is what we would now say is transgender, mm. a transgender woman. Um, and he's basically having a go at um, Dr. Elliot for, for not helping him, uh, for ending the, end, end, ending the sessions. Um, and as we now know, that's apparently because he wouldn't authorise sex reassignment surgery, mm. um, I think. And uh, later on, He'll go to the the hospital and try and try and convince the patient's doctor within a, within sort of the uh, within a mental health uh, in, in institution. But anyway, um, he then gets a call from uh, police detective Marino, <laughs> <laughs> um, who is played by uh, NYPD NYPD's Dennis Franz, mm-hmm. uh, playing being Dennis Franz being Dennis Franz. And yes. brilliant. You know, it's like cocky bullshit. <laughs> bit incompetent and incredibly rude New York cop. <laughs> um, An astounding series of horrific polyester shirts. He does. Where, 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 and he also, also laps absolute physical wreck yes. of a human being like all, like all New York cops are. <laughs> uh, um, so he doesn't believe Liz is, is his story, not least of which because she's a, she's, she's, she's a sex worker. Uh, we've got the son outside, devastated, when his, it's been informed that his mother's been his mother's been found dead. Mm. But um, Dr. Elliot then arrives because he was a patient of hers and he talks to her as well. He wants to look at the records um, to see if that can shed any light, both on her and the killer. Uh, there's a lot of judge of slut shaming that goes on in that scene when she says basically the you know Kate was up for it with anyone and just got, sort of got herself into a bit of trouble. Mm. Dr. Elliot says you're not examining my records for not entirely clear reasons uh, at this at this point, other than patient mm. patient confidentiality. And here you're sort of like you're coming, mate. Someone's been murdered. Like you know, I'm not going to yeah. tell anyone. Who knows? <laughs> you, know, you can you can let us see them. Uh, and then it's slightly sidelined from the story. As Liz sort of becomes involved with Peter, the son, uh, to try and find the killer, because they start they start in well they start in different in different ways. Peter then starts to build a, a camera to uh, to look for to look at the doctor's door to see who comes. Mm. Uh, Liz then wants to try and um, initially because she's in trouble with the police wants to try and track down her previous trick. They won't they won't tell her. Mm. Uh, however, she gets she owes some money, so she takes an expensive job. Mm. Uh, and on the way back, f- oh sorry, if I missed bit, if I missed a bit. No, no, I was just going. All, all I was going to mention there is that um, the the actor playing uh, the, the the trick, uh, Cleveland Cleveland Sam, 
is an actor named Brandon Maggot, who the same year as this was the uh, the antagonist in the uh, classic Christmas slasher Christmas Evil. Lovely. Uh, so you know, it's all it's all gonna. Brandon Maggot. Well, I found someone with a worse surname than me. That's, that's, <laughs> that's I like him. I like him already. Yeah. Um, uh, but on the way back from that, she gets in a cab, sees the killer, mm. uh, and then there's a cool, quite a cool chase sequence. Which apparently, if you bung a, if you bung a New York cab driver a fiver, uh, he'll run a red light for you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and, and assault someone that he's never met as well. Just like well, just he, thinks, he thinks that's the killer. So mm. um, he sees the blonde, and then she sees the killer in another car, mm. uh, gets him to pull over and runs to the subway. And the cab driver, thinking he's helping, waits for the what they think is the killer to, to walk past, and he opens the door, so she falls over and knocks herself, knocks herself out. Mm. Kate then, sorry, Liz then goes into, into the subway and sees the killer. So who was pursuing them wasn't the killer. Mm-hmm. She then um, hangs out uh, with some... African American gentleman who may or may not be dealing drugs or listening to to music and behave in a slightly threatening way to a mm. to a, a little woman, which is seems a you know it's slightly it's a slightly painful watch now, but eventually um, uh, she finds out that something they they start chasing her, they get taken out by some persons unseen, mm. um, and she finally gets into a uh, the the tube comes and she finally gets into this into in, in, into one of the cars. Uh, and then there's a, there's a there's a cop in the cast uh, played by a guy called Sam Art Williams, who uh, she she um, doesn't seem particularly sympathetic to her plight as because I think he's also recognised her as a sex worker, uh, and thus isn't particularly sympathetic to any trouble that she she might be in. Sam Art Williams, by the way, who I wanted to see who I remember I, I knew him from somewhere, mm. uh, and I checked and it was uh, Blood Simple, the Coen Brothers' uh, first first film but in doing so I realised he was one of the original producers of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air <laughs> um, amazing see again it's all connected amazing <laughs> I do I, I love that scene as well because um, there's there's that wonderful kind of uh, shot where he, she's saying look there's a, there's like some, some guys are after me also there's a woman trying to kill me so yeah. he's getting increasingly kind of uh, yeah. sceptical about her story um, and they kind of peer out of the train and look one way as the hoods kind of jump on the train yeah. in the other direction they turn around because oh it's something there <laughs> and then and then the the killer gets on the train in the other direction it's glorious it's yes, just so true. beautifully yeah, done it's, it, 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 this is a consistently brilliantly shot production mm. next to Palmer he yep. can shoot, yep. um, but yeah. Uh, and eventually, he uh, the the cop gets off the train. At the moment he leaves, the um, our hoods arrive, and then she starts running through the the carriages to to to, to get away from them. And then she runs slap bang into the killer. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I thought, "Oh fuck, no!" Because I'd assumed, you know, she wouldn't die. That Nancy Allen wouldn't die then. But then I assumed I didn't think it was Andrew, Dick- Andrew Dickinson was going to die when when, when she did. <laughs> And he's got her. And then the hoods go, fuck. Mm. Uh, and then someone out of nowhere, some guy just sprays the killer with spray. What I initially thought was shaving foam. But it's, I think it's a bit more, maybe more sophisticated than, than that. And that turns out to be Peter, who then uh, the killer runs. Uh, and Peter gets away and she takes Peter, Peter home. And like all teenagers that are taken home by, by sex workers, I'm sure if he'd shot his load, before getting even arriving at the <laughs> arriving at there, but they're just friends. Don't worry, yep, don't yep. worry, don't worry, kids. And they agree to pull resources and, and work together to try and 
to try and find out who the killer who who the killer really is. Mm. Yes, because Marina at one point basically literally puts Liz up to it, like says, you know, as I'm coming to, she goes. I mean, um, she goes to the Marino again and says, "Look, this guy's tried to kill me." Um, and she's like, "Got any evidence?" But she doesn't want to drop Pete in it, so she mm. says, "Nah." And <laughs> Marino says to her, basically, like, you know, I'm going to charge you with it because there's no one, no one better, and it takes too long to get a search warrant. But of course, if you want to break in and get some evidence. Yeah. Even though I'm sure that evidence would therefore be inadmissible, um, <laughs> because she's obtained it illegally, uh, be my be my guest. Which is which is literally the plot of Bird with Crystal Plumage. It is true. That's very true. Yes. Yeah. Because I'm I'm a cop and therefore useless. I can't do any investigating. Um, <laughs> uh, so they um, they infiltrate um, Doctor Elliot's office mainly uh, by Liz Becky making an appointment um, and flirting with 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 dr elliot and basically say oh my is it hot in here and then stripping down <laughs> to her, her underwear including um yeah stockings and uh, suspenders um and then she just says i'm gonna go and powder my nose <laughs> and then while she's out there and he starts thinking way um and starts taking his clothes off she starts going through the the, the book to find out um who this uh, who the, the the guy who we assume is the guy who's making the phone calls to to Dr. Elliot that the killer is um and she finds out a name uh but then when she comes and she see her all doing that while wearing sexy underwear which just somewhat <laughs> somewhat i mean it's not a it's not an empowering uh, scene for no scene. not so much Seen, seen, seen for women, um, and then Peter, who's outside waiting to waiting to help, uh, a blonde turns up behind him and grabs him, and you think that's that's the killer. The killer's arrived, um, but then when Liz goes back into the room, uh, Michael Caine's nowhere to be seen, and there's and there's the killer, and then the blonde outside shoots the killer, apparently, but not 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 fatally, and in mm. doing so, uh, the killer's wig falls off. And then you realise that Bobby, uh, who is the killer, is also Doctor Elliot, the same to the same person, and the the phone call, the phone messages have been to him, have been to, to himself, and it's revealed that the blonde who we thought was the killer and was the blonde who was pursuing pursuing Liz before is a female police officer who's been training Liz, and then Elliot is committed to to the to the mental health inst- institution, and we get a some very problematic turn about. Um, about the, the the mind of this particular uh, tran- transgender person um, mm-hmm. who basically rebels, who is becomes pretty much schizophrenic um, mm. and rebels every time he becomes sexually aroused, she is um, uh, subsumed, and then they, they it's basically treated like a split personality. Yeah, and then the last you see of Doctor Elliot is he's in a multi bed ward, which doesn't strike me as for a psychotic murderer. Uh, uh, he's then treated by a nurse who he then overpowers takes her clothes off and she's wearing suspenders as well but I'm sure that's not <laughs> and all the, it's like and then, then you look up and all the, it seems like the inmates have, take, have, have taken over mm. um, he puts her clothes the, the nurse's clothes on breaks into Peter's house where Liz has decided to, to, to stay having a shower nice return to the full circle from the beginning of the film mm-hmm. and then slashes her but then she wakes up, and we're not sure where the dream, whether or not Dr. Elliot has escaped at all, or if that was part of the dream. Mm. She wakes up screaming, Peter runs into her room and um, comforts her, and the film finishes. Fade to black. 
and it's isn't it great? <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, it's it, as I, as I say for, for things like I would, I would have probably forgiven it more as an actual Italian Jello because right. the tone is all over the place. Yeah, um, it's it has the dialogue is ridiculous, like really ridiculous in the way that you you will find. But and often I you know take that as part of the you know part of the Jello trope of something something has to be has to you know has to happen every every ten minutes to make the audience pay attention, mm. and that I'm listening to something that's you know either translated or on it was either translated via either via subtitles or or dubbing. So you will always lose some sense of syntax, you know, perfect syntax usage. Uh, but there's no excuse, such excuse here. Um, <laughs> it's it's it becomes three different things at once. Yes, there's it's nicks several things off um, of Psycho, um, but it's it's a shallow. It's yep. uh, it's a classic. It's the only thing that stops it being even more of a shallow is there's only really one victim. Mm. Yeah, it's a good one. Normally, there'd be four or five, but that's it. Uh, uh, the method of um, the method of killing, like you know, the cutting complete cutting Kate's death scene where they cut back to her like four or five times of having a having her being slashed mm. before her neck is before her, her neck is done. Um, the gratuitous um, sexuality throughout 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 the whole thing. The partnering with a slightly underage boy. <laughs> <laughs> As we as we try and probably elicit sort of an adolescent fantasies out of out of, out of this is 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 bizarre, mm. um, but yeah, it's genuinely really interesting. Within ten minutes, I was like, "What the fuck are you making me watch?" <laughs> Which is essentially becomes like a a day in. A, a day, a, a day in a very bored housewife's life. Yeah, um, which is often a often a. Um, a plot I, I imagine for porn, um, but it becomes something very different after, after after the elevator scene, while not necessarily becoming anything more progressive. No, no, that's true. But it was gen- it's, it was genuinely fascinating, genuinely mm. fascinating. Um, and yeah, it's it goes well. I mean, it stars Michael Caine, but he's not really in the majority of it, and the only mm. real bit he has to do is um, become the killer. That's the just that's the only interesting bit of him. But it's one scene. Mm, uh, I'm assuming yep. he plays the killer in in the other scenes. No, he doesn't. Oh, he doesn't, right? No, okay, so you that, don't even that, have him for that. No, th- that's, that's actually um, that's actually Susanna Clem who plays the policewoman. So, uh, so it's a kind of a double cheat because she, she's following as her character, and she's also following as the killer. So <laughs> that's that's very bad. Nancy Allen's quite quite fun in a in a ridiculous <laughs> ridiculous kind of. I do. I I love the scene at the end as they're having this discussion in this very sort of upscale restaurant bar, um, and there's just a lady sitting behind Keith yes. Gordon <laughs> who's getting like who's overhearing all of the this very waspy lady uh, who's getting more and more disgusted and, and nauseated as they're talking about panectomies and J.K. Rowling's mum. <laughs> yeah, very yeah, very probably. <laughs> The odd thing is that that discussion at the end between Liz and Liz and Peter is Nancy, sorry, Liz explaining to to, to Peter, you know, the reality of tra- and it, that's a relatively progressive chat. You just say this is what they do. People, you mm. know, uh, feel they're born in the wrong body, which rather mm. which rather undercuts anything you've had before, which is basically saying this mental this person this psychotic mentally ill person is transgender. Um, mm. They'll kill you, uh, which isn't isn't a positive message. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's it's a very bizarre film, but 
well well worth a watch i'm glad mm. i'm glad i'm still not sure if i like it or not i'm really glad i've watched it right uh, and i will almost certainly watch it again and see yeah. if i feel any different going to it as well oh was uh we didn't mention it. he's in he's only in one scene but when michael kane goes to see uh the doctor at the at the institute there's david margulies uh who's if is a American character actor, but probably best known for being the mayor in Ghostbusters. He had an interesting career in New York. Did he? Right. <laughs> well, yeah. From this, he was, you know, he was a, he was a psychiatrist at a mental institute, and then he was the mayor of uh, the mayor when this goes. Oh, Georgia. I see. Yes, in this, in this as well. <laughs> he's. It's been a function that he's probably most famous for just having Bill Murray say at him, "This man has no dick," <laughs> which, given dress to kill, is. A bit of circularity, I guess. There's a, there's, there's a connection there of a sort. Who does he say at? Is it? Um, oh, it's um, it's William Atherton, isn't it? It's yeah, William Atherton as the uh, as plays health Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. He's he's the douche in Ghostbusters, and and his other best known role is the douche in uh, Die Hard and Die yes. Hard Two. This is a, this is a hugely interesting interesting film, and like you know, um, Angie Dickinson, as you know, you made that like, she plays that. She's, you know, considered like an older actor by mm. this point as well. She's in her probably about 49, 50. I think she's in her early 50s here. Early she 50s, was, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, she, she gets the majority of the the, 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 the sex scenes. And mm. um, she's probably best known for, you know, what things like, you know, 60s films. Like, you know, she's in Point Blank, isn't she? Yeah, Point Blank, Rio Barra. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, interestingly, she so she is, she is doubled for a lot of that shower scene. Uh, um, okay. by, uh, there, was, there was me thinking it was really progressive at showing, yeah. her, at showing a forty-nine-year-old's tits. It's yeah. like, oh dear. Um, but yeah. So and funnily enough, so so she's doubled by um, a lady named Victoria Lynn Johnson, who is a I think a Playboy playmate or a penthouse pet or something like that. Um, and and through the kind of conversations with her, that's where the kind of inspiration for Brian De Palma's body double came from. Um, I see. Uh, but yeah, the, but one of the things that I, I sort of reading around this and, and was watching uh, one of the making of things from quite a few years ago because everyone's sort of twenty years younger than they are today, uh, even on the DVD extra. Um, but Angie Dickinson kind of saying so she had just come off um, the TV show that she did called Police Woman, which was kind of the while it, it, it again it's sort of it's a seventies TV show so it, it's not exactly super progressive but it is you know the first kind of female fronted cop show right, um, okay. so in that sense it's quite groundbreaking so she was somewhat reluctant to, to kind of take this on even though she'd kind of been known previously um as a as a sex symbol because you know she in the 60s she you know she'd been in these films she'd been on lots of magazine covers um and then in kind of like the 70s she'd done uh, Big Bad Mama with uh, Roger Corman, which you know. So at that point, she's in like her early forties. She had like nude scenes, which at that point was you know again sort of quite quite surprising. Whether you want to say it's progressive or not, but it, it was I think so sort of quite shocking. But my my favorite Angie Dickinson quote um, is that she said when she was cast in uh, the the part of of the titular character in, in Police Woman, uh, a reporter asked her if she'd ever played a sleuth before. And she said, oh, yeah, lots. Um, and it's only later she said, I didn't actually know what a sleuth was. I thought he meant slut. Oh. So she is. So in this, she's, I guess she's sort of playing to type of a type. I don't know. But yeah, that's uh, yeah, I find it very difficult to believe that, that Brian De Palma has never seen a, a Jello before, but we have, we have to believe him. So he just unwittingly made 
one of the most jalloiest jallos <laughs> that's ever been jalloed. Yeah. Um, committed to film. And we can easily, I think, the most, sorry, the most easy uh, explanation we can give for that is just he's of a very similar mindset to someone like Argento. Hmm. Yep. Let's be let's be generous and say that because I just you just submit you just admit to it surely. Well, that's the thing, and you know he's 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 copped to you know he's been perfectly free about you know blowout is the conversation meets blow up you know he, that's a you know a very specific exercise in in combining those two things, and he's perfectly happy to talk about you know his love of Hitchcock and everything. So it does seem it would does seem a little odd that. He would be like, but I'm not. I'm not giving that Italian bastard any credit. But you know, it's uh... <laughs> good stuff. Yeah. So, what's next? Well, uh, what's next is uh, you can have a rest for a couple of months. Oh God, uh, are we done? Uh, is that the second series done? That's the second series done. My word! So you can uh, you, you can go and reset your critical faculties with some you know good films. My God, what will I, what will I, what will I do now? And yeah, yeah but I'm still still I'm sure there's still a lot to look forward to that you can utterly. Yes, just... I think. <laughs> do you have, do you have, do you have well, some I... idea of, where, of, of what's of what's happening with series with series three? Yes, I think um, sort of shaking up a little bit. I, I think having gone through kind of chronologically a couple of times, I hopefully we've kind of established. The various eras and and touch points and and key moments in in the genre. So I think it's probably uh, a, maybe a little more fun if we just kind of uh, mix it up a bit, so that we're not kind of always kind of on a downward slope when we get to kind of the late seventies and eighties. Okay, fantastic. Uh, uh, so so I think uh, yeah, we'll 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 do that. I think we have enough context now to. Um, to just kind of jump around a bit and uh, throw in some some interesting things from from various eras and probably because um, I, I was sort of slightly conscious of not doing too much of the Argento and too much of the Fulci and all of the you know the sort of the the very famous ones and and trying to bring in some other interesting di- directors and and actors and things but I think we will kind of certainly go back to to uh s- some of the more well-known ones just because they there's a reason why they're well known <laughs> we can do some good ones yeah yeah they tend to be quite good so um so yeah we, 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 we will mix in some of that so that's that's how we're mixing things up for the third series we haven't got like a you know a robot sidekick or anything <laughs> yeah yeah I, I my, my voice has completely changed but no one notices <laughs> I don't mean replacing you. I meant like intro- introduced <laughs> yeah. as, a, yeah, as a as a as a new thing, or you know, like a little alien that only I can see and hear talks to me. That would be, that would be amazing. It, I'm not sure <laughs> the visual aspect will come across particularly well. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, um, thank you, Dave, for this uh, another an, an, another bizarre odyssey. Um, I, to, to quote um, uh, Samuel Coleridge, I leave it a, a sadder and wiser man. <laughs> um, I hope everyone's uh, has enjoyed has enjoyed listening to this. Please do rate it and five stars. Not anything else, please God. Um, uh, wherever you get your podcasts from, and if you will just leave the comment un- under it that Suspiria isn't a shallow. Well, what? No, nothing more to be said. <laughs> to be said. Until next time. Until next time. John and I will be back later in the year with more problematic stabbing, shower scenes, crazy interior design, wild lighting and funky psychotronic lounge music. Until then, 
Thanks so much for choosing to hang with us over this last batch of episodes, and we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye.